Let's pray together. Lord, my prayer, I think, is simple, really. I just ask that you would add a measure of grace to my heart as I preach, as I explain just a a few thoughts here on this passage, on this Good Friday service, that you would guide our hearts into a more confessional place, aware of our sin and shortcomings, so that we can glory in the cross, we can glory in the resurrection. I pray that you do much through these words. I ask it in Jesus' name, your name, amen. Um, we're going to be looking at a, a short piece of what we just read, actually, from Luke uh, 23, verses 39 through 43. Um, my family has a family verse uh, that we try to read before we have a meal every time we sit down together as a family, and we thought this time we would try to memorize something dealing with the resurrection. Uh, this is a simple way for our daughter to learn uh, about the Lord and to memorize scripture. And uh, my wife confronted me and was like, we can't learn about the resurrection. We can't have a resurrection verse until we understand the significance of the cross. We have to have a Good Friday verse before we have an Easter verse. And I thought that was very wise. Uh, And so it is that we really can't understand the good news of Easter until we understand the bad news, if you will, of Good Friday. We can't understand the gospel clarity in the resurrection and the hope that we have there until we see truly the weightiness of sin that we stop to pause and reflect upon on Good Friday. So the verse that we picked is Romans 5.8, which says this, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we pause, as we reflect on these things, we do so so that we can appreciate the resurrection more. Um, this passage that I'm about to walk us through and share some thoughts on is the only account of this in the Gospels, which means it's really important, it's unique. Um, and really, it's, an, it's a real-life uh, illustration of what we're talking about this morning, uh, or what is this evening? Um, uh, you know, as Christians, we refer to the cross and to the crucifixion a pretty fair amount. So much so that I think that we've actually lost the meaning of what the cross and the crucifixion stand for. So I want to give you a bit of a historical uh, context for that very thing. The word crucifixion uh, comes uh, to us, and um, it means something very weighty. The crucifixion uh, means an unbearable pain, or it means extreme agony. And the word excruciating I might have flipped that. Excruciating is what I just defined, and um, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion, and really it's a picture of hell on earth when you think about it. Um, And it it relates to us the physical pain, the emotional pain, and in Christ's sense, uh, the spiritual pain that come along with this suffering. Um, One commentator explains the crucifixion like this. He says, as a means of execution, crucifixion was particularly heinous. This had as much to do with the public humiliation accompanying crucifixion as with the act itself. Bound or nailed to a stake or a tree or a cross, the victim faced death with all organs intact and with relatively little blood loss. As a consequence, death came slowly, sometimes over several days, 
as the body succumbed to shock or asphyxiation. Crucifixion included a flogging or a beating beforehand with a leather whip containing pieces of metal or bone that tore the flesh away from the body as it was being retrieved after it struck the body. Not to mention that you were crucified naked. Not to mention that this was done at a public square or at the crossroads of a busy thoroughfare in the city. Not to mention that the body was left on the cross for days to rot so that the birds could picket it as a public demonstration of shame. This is what we pause to reflect on today. So we come to our passage, and already we have these three men who are being crucified in Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. They're already being crucified. They're already under this judgment and condemnation. And verse 39 starts off, and we see some mocking from the first criminal. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him or threw insults at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's mocking him. This is a sarcastic way of making fun of the Lord. And when he refers to him as the Christ, he's referring to him as the Messiah or the one who is supposed to deliver his people. But the logic here of both this criminal and everyone else in this story who is mocking uh, Jesus on the cross or in the Passion narrative is basically this. How could the Messiah, the Christ, how could he... Uh, the one who's supposed to deliver his people, uh, suffer? How could he uh, allow himself to, uh, to suffer these things? If he can't deliver himself, how could he possibly be who he claims to be? So this is him sarcastically mocking him, and this is the sixth time that he's mocked in this way in this passage. And so what we see throughout this is as all the different parties involved are mocking Jesus. They're basically making a parade and spectacle of him throughout this, this narrative. Um, they find it quite hilarious that he would uh, have the audacity to call himself the king of the Jews or to refer to himself as the son of God, and yet this is the plight of this man. They find it so hilarious that they blindfold him and beat him and tell him uh, to prophesy and ask, who was it that hit you? They find it hilarious. They find it hilarious that they would dress him in splendid clothing, kind of like a king, and parade him around. They find it hilarious. They find it hilarious that they would put a sign over his head that says, this is the king of the Jews. And here in, in verse 39, we see for the third time him being mocked by someone saying, save yourself. Save yourself. If you are really who you say you are, save yourself. If you can save others, save yourself. You see, Luke right here, the, the, the gospel writer Luke, is using this repetition to make a very important point. Um, he does this um, to show that Jesus could have saved himself, but he chose not to. And that was the plan all along, as Luke tells us that he foretold his death three times. He could have saved himself, but in so doing, Jesus wouldn't have been able to have saved anyone else. Jesus could not save himself and everyone else. So the great irony is that those who mocked Jesus, they paraded him around like a king, and that is exactly what he is. But you see, they rejected Jesus because they had an agenda. 
they weren't able to see the real Jesus because they had a preconceived notion of who he was supposed to be. They expected him to be a militaristic, powerful person who's going to overthrow the government. And that's quite opposite of how Jesus actually engaged in his ministry. Instead, Jesus allows himself to be crucified by the government as opposed to overthrowing the government because this is his way of delivering the people. But they rejected that, of course, because they, they couldn't see that. They had a preconceived notion. So moving on through our passage, <clears throat> we're moving away from the first criminal to verse 40 where it says, But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, putting himself in that same lot with the other criminal who's being crucified, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he's basically saying, shut up. Shut up, you idiot. Are you kidding me? He's saying, you're, you're such a fool. We are condemned and we deserve it. He's making a very clear confession of his guilt, and he knows that he's getting exactly what he deserves. Even though crucifixion is this horrible act of capital punishment, and I don't think we would agree with the act itself, he understands that he's under the just penalty of the law of the day. So he understands that justice is being had. Now, do we realize that this is actually what we deserve as well? If crucifixion is a picture of hell on earth, do we, do we capture the fact that this is what we really deserve? The cross represents hell on earth, this physical, emotional, and in Christ's sense, a spiritual uh, hell on earth. And the second criminal speaks for all of us when he says, we all are under the same condemnation and justly getting what we deserve for our deeds. You see, we deserve a spiritual crucifixion. We deserve God's judgment, but we don't have to pay it. That's the beauty of what's happening in the gospel and in this passage. And then he moves on and he starts talking about how this man has done nothing wrong. Now, it's not just that he's neutral, but he's actually positively righteous. It's not that he's just not sinned. It's actually that everything he's done has earned God's favor and blessing because he's fully righteous. So this means that this was a profound injustice in the, in the face of all the people of the world, that an innocent man is being put to death in the most heinous way imaginable. So that's how we see it. We see it as injustice, right? But that's not how God sees it. God doesn't see injustice in this. God doesn't see injustice when he looks at the cross because he sees the cross as justice because that's how the sin of each one of us is paid for. So that's, that's how the disobedience is punished. That's how the consequence of breaking the law is paid for. That's how sin is atoned for. That's how the penalty is ultimately paid in full. And it just happens to be paid by an innocent man. The penalty is paid by an innocent man so that a guilty man, the second criminal, can go free. That's how forgiveness is offered. So the law must be upheld and the just penalty must be paid so that the grace can be given. That's what this story is about. So then we come to verse 42 and we see this beautiful exchange between the criminal and Jesus. He's already rebuked the other criminal. Now he's going to turn to Jesus and he says to Jesus these intimate words, Jesus, addressing him by name, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
So this man's already made this incredible confession of his guilt. He's confessed to the innocence that he sees in Christ, and now he confesses his trust in the king. But he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say he's the king, did he? But what I see there, what we see there, is that he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows that the kingdom belongs to Jesus, which means that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He's making a clear profession of faith in him, and he's trusting in him and begging him to remember him. And he knows how unworthy he is, and this drives him to a place of humility where he begs the king to have his presence in his kingdom, and he receives it. And then we have this beautiful response from Jesus in verse 43. Jesus said to him, Truly, this is the most emphatic word in the Greek language for him to convey the depth of what he's about to say. Truly, I say to you, today, not sometime in the distant future, but in this very immediate present moment, today, you will be with me in paradise. When he says paradise, it's, it's actually referencing what you see in the Garden of Eden. This beautiful picture of God and man walking in the cool of the day together. This is a picture of presence and intimacy and relationship that cannot be broken. This idea of paradise is the heavenly dwelling for all the people of God. And so we see this beautiful invitation from the king to live in his kingdom with him. So what is the story about? The story is about two guilty men, both condemned and dying, and how they respond to Jesus. One rejects Jesus and mocks him as not being who he claims to be. The other man puts his trust in him and receives the king and his kingdom. So friends, this story is actually a story about all of us. This is a story about you and about me and about everyone else who's not here today. Because we are all guilty, condemned and dying, and this is a story about how we respond to Jesus. Do you know what it was that held Jesus to the cross? This is a famous Tim Keller thing. You should probably know the answer to this. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love. Only his love was powerful enough to hold him to the cross. The picture of Jesus stretching out his arms, being crucified, opening up his entire being, looking over and saying, today you will be with me in paradise. His love was for the criminal next to him, and his love is for you and me today. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May you believe that now and may you worship the Lord with me. Amen. Please stand for our closing hymn.